my dear brethren and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. As you'll recall, we commenced the second chapter learning that when David had overcome his grief and had outpoured his heart before Yahweh concerning the death of his beloved Jonathan and his respect for Saul as the anointed of Yahweh who had died, he then turned to God and asked God what he should do. Should he go up to one of the cities of Judah? And God told him he should go to Hebron, which he did, and was thereupon in due course of time, we don't know how long negotiations took place or how long discussions were held, but David was received as king over Judah and accordingly anointed as their king. And it's quite remarkable that the first thing that David did, as we saw in our last class, was to send a message to the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And you will recall that they were the people who showed kindness unto Saul because Saul had showed kindness unto them. And therefore, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead to point out to them that he acknowledged their courage and their devotion to Saul in doing what they had done in going into the camp of the Philistines to recover what was left of the bodies of Saul and his sons and afford them a suitable burial. And in that regard, we pointed out last class that no one could ever say that David had joyfully seized the throne of Judah over the body of a dead king. He commended those men for what they had done. And that in itself was again an illustration of the wonderful character and the spiritual mindedness of David as a man of God. Now this becomes very, very interesting this evening as we continue through and take up that narrative in verse 8. Because here we find that Abner is introduced into the narrative. In verse 8 we read, But Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's army, and we use that word army there advisedly because the word host that commonly appears in our Old Testament scriptures is generally a military term, has a military connotation and depending on the, uh, the context it may be a great uh, uh, army of people which are not really an army and so therefore we can read it as host. But here of course it obviously signifies army. So Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. Now, first of all, a word regarding Abner. Abner was Saul's uncle. He was a brother to Kish, who was Saul's father. That takes us back to the first of Samuel chapter 9. And he had been the commander of Saul's army, which is evident from the first of Samuel chapter 14 and verse 50. So he was a man of considerable power and considerable influence. But he wasn't satisfied, he wanted more. And of course his loyalty to the dead king and his bitterness at the defeat of Saul and his death would have been very, very intense. So in looking at Abner at this time we are dealing with a very dangerous man. And you know there's something to be learned even in that because it's very evident that Abner had become very embittered because of the death of Saul, the dissipation of the army and the things that had happened, virtually the disintegration of the kingdom. Now, of course, word has reached him 
but David has been made and anointed king over Judah. You know, when you stop to think about that, we all of us in our life in the truth suffer many defeats as we go through life. Things don't always go the way we want them to be. I don't mean necessarily that we are defeated in the truth, but in our daily lives and the affairs of life, whether it be in family matters or whether it be in ecclesial matters or our own individual personal uh, lives, insofar perhaps as our work is concerned or something of that nature. And that's part of life in the truth because every time we suffer a defeat or we might say a reversal in some way or another, it is a test to our faith. How do we react to that? Do we accept it as such? realising that the angels of Yahweh are with us and about us and they can prevent these defeats from coming upon us if need be, but they don't and so therefore we have to ask why, we have to seek an answer and we have to continue on in faith, trying to cause our faith to grow so that out of defeats in life comes the victory of faith if our attitude of mind and our spirit is right. But Abner was not that sort of a man. Abner was now the power man, as we shall see, among those people in Israel. He was the power man of the remnant of Saul's court. And his attempt to establish Saul's son here, Ishbosheth, upon the throne, would have been seen by many in Israel as a sign of Abner's continuing loyalty to the house of Saul, and therefore an act of faithfulness and patriotism. That's how it may have been regarded. But in actual fact, David was now the anointed of Yahweh and that was well known in Israel. It's all well and good to say, well, here's a sign of Abner's continuing loyalty to the house of Saul. And he was going to fight for the house of Saul. That was patriotic. He was upholding the kingly house. But Abner had a hidden agenda. And it's all well and good to appear outwardly loyal to the truth, loyal to the ecclesia. But we have, we have personal self-interests that we're serving at the same time and that is our number one priority. Well then our motives are very strongly suspect and we're not to be trusted in matters of that nature. You see, David really deserved the respect of Abner at this particular point. Abner would have known, as Israel knew, that the words of first of Samuel 16 would now apply. That Yahweh had caused Samuel to anoint David to be the next king over Israel. But here he is now setting up Ishbosheth as king. We need to think about that very carefully. The name Ishbosheth signifies man of shame. Ishbosheth was not necessarily so because he was being manipulated by Abner. But how appropriate that name was in its meaning in view of the disasters which had fallen upon Saul and his house. If Saul typified and exemplified the household, we're not talking about Jonathan, we're talking about the house of Saul as a, a ruling class like the house of Windsor in England or something of that nature, then the name man of shame certainly applied there. You'll notice, interestingly, the uh, little note in the margin there that his name had also been known as Esh-Baal, which means man of Baal. 
He was otherwise known by that name, how typical that was of, uh, of Saul's household. It seems as though Baal was some kind of a family name associated with Saul's house. Because you also read in those uh, uh, verses and those passages that are next to that little number nine there, notice First of Chronicles 8, First of Chronicles 9, chapter 4, verse 4, and so on. You'll learn in one of those passages there that Jonathan's son was named Merib Baal, uh, M-E-R-I-B, Merib Baal. But that signifies strife or contention against Baal. So you see, if Jonathan was somehow rather because of a family tradition that this name had to be used, Jonathan made sure that it was used in the right way, not as Ishbosheth was, meaning man of Baal, but in the case of Jonathan's son, his other name or earlier name was strife or contention against Baal, because Jonathan was a man of the truth. Now notice here in verse 8 some interesting words. Abner took Ishbosheth. Abner brought Ishbosheth to Mahanaim. So who was in charge here? Well, it's fairly evident that Ishbosheth, although if he felt that he was entitled to be the king, could have taken up that position and the authority with it and put Abner in his place. It's very evident that Abner was pulling the strings. And that comes out again in the various passages that we have yet before us to consider. So he brought him to Mahanaim, which seems an astonishing thing to do. Because where Saul lived was on the west of Jordan. We should really have a map here tonight to put on the overhead and show you. God willing, we'll perhaps try and do that at the next class. A long, long way away from here, Mahanaim was well over Jordan to the east. Why did Abner choose to bring him here? and there proclaim him king. Well, there'd be a variety of reasons. There's one great one. We'll get to that last. First of all, being on the east of Jordan, it was away from the Philistines' advances to the land. And at this time, remember, there is no one to stop the Philistines. The Philistines were everywhere throughout the land of Israel. It was also on the border between the tribes of Gad and Manasseh. And support from both of those tribes would have been very, very needful to Ishbosheth if he was going to carry the day as far as maintaining the throne was concerned. In addition to that, Mahanaim was a Levitical city, so it carried certain religious overtones and significance as well. All of those things were quite important. I'll tell you something else. Mahanaim was about 15 miles from Jabesh Gilead. Jabesh Gilead was to the, uh, to the north of Mahanaim, about 15 miles. That's fairly close, isn't it? And you see, there is a link here between verse 4 and verse 8. In verse 4, we have where David sent to the men of Jabesh Gilead and gave them that message that he endorsed them. And so here is Abner <coughs> thinking all this out. And Abner is saying... Well, what we have to do is to move into a place near Jabesh Gilead because David is trying to win these men over. You see, Abner saw it as a kind of a political power game at this point. In the case of David, with just sheer honesty and spiritual mindedness, 
that caused him to make that move with those messengers going to Jabesh Gilead. That's all it was with David. He was just simply an honest man doing what was right and doing what God would approve of. But Abner, once he knew that David had sent to the men of Jabesh Gilead and Abner read that as saying, David's trying to drag these men, first of all, into support with the tribe of Judah, who were way over on the west of Jordan. He's trying to unite the nation under him through these men of Jabesh Gilead. But you'll remember we made the point at the last class that when David sent that message to the men of Jabesh Gilead, he made no demands upon them, he made no claims upon them, he simply sent them his good wishes for what they had done. But Abner is a power man. And Abner is a politician. So Abner sees that what he must do is to move Ishbosheth across to the east of Jordan and there establish him as king. So you'll notice the final words of verse 8 are linked with the opening words of verse 9. And brought him over to Mahanaim and made him king over Gilead and over all the Asherites and so forth. And made him king. It's as though Abner is now sending out a message to David saying, we're here and we've got a king. So the result of that was that the nation is now divided clearly into two camps, which is not what Yahweh would have wanted, nor did he ever intend that that should be so when he chose David to be the next king. You see, that is brought out in the name of the place, Mahanaim, because it signifies twin camps. And that is exactly what we have in Israel now at this time. They were divided into two camps. In effect, I suppose, they were divided into two fellowships. We'll see that come out even more strongly, God willing, in a short while. But you see, here is where Proverbs 21 and verse 30 comes to apply, which says there is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against Yahweh. And Abner could do all he liked. He thought he was in a very strong position. But Ishbosheth was going to become a puppet in his hands and he was going to be the power behind the throne. Do you know it's a very interesting thing? You'll see as these studies proceed that Abner and Joab were two very, very similar men. They were similar in many, many ways. They were both quite ruthless and quite merciless when their own self-interest required that. They were also remarkable in having another thing in common and that was that neither Joab nor Abner ever desired or sought the throne for themselves that both of those men like to be close to the seat of power. They like to have the king that they wanted and they like to be close to the seat of power. In other words, personal ambition. Not a good thing, is it? When men are supposed to be claiming to be the servants of Yahweh and the servants of their brethren, the ecclesia. So that proverb is very important, isn't it? There is no wisdom, nor understanding, nor counsel against Yahweh. doesn't matter what you do, you cannot fight Yahweh. And every day, brethren and sisters, we should always remember that lesson. In our own lives in the truth, from beginning to end, we need guidance and direction from Almighty God. 
We need to seek his way, which is what Adam should have been doing right now. We need to seek his way through a deeper and a consistent study of the word, which reveals to us the will of God. And also by communion with him in prayer, by a remembrance that the angels of Yahweh are everywhere doing his will and doing his bidding. The angels of Yahweh can be in our presence to help us at any time that we call upon the Father if it is his will to do that. So what we have is David's spirit in contrast to that of Adonai. In Psalm 25 and at verse 4, David shows his attitude and it's there in these words. Show me thy ways, O Yahweh. Teach me thy path. That was David's spirit. That's why he did what he did in sending those messengers to the men of Jabesh Gilead. But Abner, like Saul, did not do this. It's rather remarkable that as the captain of Saul's army and as Saul's uncle, a member of the family, he was a man very, very much like Saul in many ways. So in verse 9, he makes Ishbosheth king in Mahanaim. And that was, that was Abner's reaction to David's words of peace. David had sent out a message, messengers of goodwill to the east of Jordan. But Abner had to make a counter move because he was more concerned with the politics of the whole matter and maintaining the house of Saul as the reigning power. And so instead of uniting together with David against the common enemy, which was the Philistines, the Gentiles, there were now two kings in Israel. Only the tribe of Judah stood by David at this particular time. And the other tribes, as we shall learn as time goes on, were by and large, if committed at all, were committed to Ishbosheth. And I dare say we should bear in mind that even in spite of the defeat at the hands of Philistine, the Philistines, Adna, was still able to muster a reasonable force of, uh, of armed men at this particular time. So in verse 10 it goes on to tell us that Ishbosheth reigned two years. And what happened during that time? Was there some kind of an uneasy truce? The one thing we do know is that there was no unity in Israel. There was no unity because there were two kings. And that was never Yahweh's way. And you see, had Abner, as the power man behind Ishbosheth, had he turned to the word, the first of Samuel chapter 16 and verse 12, not that it was in writing at that time, but it was said and it was known, as we said earlier, that Yahweh said to Samuel, here is the one, arise and anoint him. He is to be the next king over Israel. Had Abner turned to the word, had he turned to spiritually minded brethren, had he accepted the word, then Israel would have become one united house under one king and one God at that particular time but personal ambition and self-interest came into the case here. So what we find then is that as time goes on, the time that David was king in Hebron, at verse 11, over the house of Judah was seven years and six months and then 
In verse 12 we learn that Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gideon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gideon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Now that might sound relatively harmless in those first few verses. But as far as Abner was concerned, he had grown impatient. And you know, that's a very great weakness. Personally, I have many, many weaknesses, a lot of which you're all acquainted with. But one of my greatest weaknesses is impatience. I'm always in a hurry to get things done. And that sometimes doesn't always lead to the best of results. In the case of Abner, he's not prepared to wait any longer. So what he does here is he makes a deliberate move to promote a showdown with David or David's army to try and put David into disrepute and to bolster the case among the tribes on behalf of Ishbosheth. So now he is not only impatient, but Abner has now developed quite a degree of self-confidence. Always a mistake among Yahweh's servants. Self-confidence. A belief that we can win out. That we know how to handle this matter and we can deal with it and we can get it done. We can get it all fixed up. Don't worry about it. Don't you worry about it. Famous Australian saying. Don't you worry about a thing. You see, it's a great failing to have that attitude of mind. And we find that Abner here is going to cause more trouble and strife than he realises that he is becoming involved in. He wanted to increase his power. He wanted to increase his influence over the weaker Ishbosheth. He was manipulating events and thought that he was manipulating them without any consideration for the angels of Yahweh who were there all the time throughout the whole of this. So Abner is really now manifesting the same ruthless streak of character in a thirst for power and prestige that was going to eventually corrupt Joab as well. You'll see that God willing in due time because Joab was Abner's opponent on this occasion. And you know, it's quite true to say that a lust for power and prestige and standing and influence has destroyed many men in the truth throughout the centuries of time. A great example of Abner's uh, belief in his own power and his own influence is found in chapter 3 and verses 6 to 11 which perhaps could be noted there, but we'll be dealing with that, God willing, uh, in a few weeks' time when we get to that. So Abner here, in effect, was continuing the same attitude of persecution toward David that Saul had revealed. In other words, he's carrying on the work of Saul in opposition to David. And as we said earlier, in many ways, Abner was a very similar type of person to Saul. So he brings his men back across 
the Jordan, to Gideon, a place especially chosen. Gideon dominated the path and the pass to Beth Horon, which was situated on the border of Judah and Benjamin. And it gave access right into the heart of Judah's territory. So in doing this, Abner shows how impudent he is. It was an act of impudence for a start. Strategically, of course, it was advantageous, a very advantageous point, from which to make an attack into the heartland of Judah, the territory of Judah. But at the same time, the pass of Bethoran would also bring an army from the south or the west right through to the Jordan, so it would have provided equally a suitable way of attack if Joab's army were required to do that, if need be. So there they were at Gibeon. And here is Joab and the servants of David went out to the same place. Seems to be staggering in itself the fact that both armies arrived at Gibeon at the same time. There must have been some prior arrangement between Abner and Joab. Perhaps David was even unaware of this because the outcome of this was not what David would have wanted. So they came and they met together. The word porgash, P-A-G-A-S-H. It means to come in contact with either by accident or violence. Well, there was no accident about this and that it was providential and that the angels were there observing all of this, there can be no doubt. So they come and they assemble at the pool of Gideon. Gideon was about six miles northwest of Jerusalem. So you'll note from that that Abner had caused his army to travel quite some distance to get there, six miles northwest of Jerusalem. And do you know that recent excavations have turned up more than 20 jar handles with the name of the city Gibeon inscribed on them? Not only that, the ruins of that pool still remain. And archaeologists have found there a pool that is 120 feet long and 100 feet wide. We don't look to those things to support the record of the Bible, but they are interesting when they come up, aren't they? So they came to this pool and they sat down. A word which signifies to sit down, but especially as a judge in ambush. So this was the mind of both parties. And it gets a little grimmer as we read on. In other words, both sides were wary, they were alert, and they were ready for combat. And then notice what we read there in verse 13. The one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other. There was no fellowship between them. They represented divided ecclesias. So in verse 14, they had obviously observed each other for a while. What discussions they may have had between Joab and Abner is not recorded. But in verse 14, 
Abner says to Joab, let the young men now arise and play before us. And if anyone was playing, it wasn't Abner. And it wasn't Joab either. Here are the two armies gathered on either side of the pool. Abner's army waiting for a signal from their leader that they should attack the other. Joab's men watching and waiting and intent upon his instruction that they might obey that as well. And you can imagine the atmosphere there at that time would have been absolutely electric and grim. Play has the primary idea of to laugh. But do you know it is sometimes used, so Gesenius tells us, in a most sinister way. While it means to laugh, which is what we usually do when something funny happens, it can also mean to deride or to have in derision or to mock. Think about those two totally opposite meanings. And what we've got there is indicative of two armies of men opposed to each other who basically were both two-faced, laughing outwardly, making light of the whole thing, but inwardly deriding. It's very interesting that in this instance here, Abner is not suggesting a contest to decide the battle. As you know, sometimes we have read about and does occur, where instead of two armies becoming locked in battle, Two leaders might say, well, look, you select a dozen men, I'll select a dozen men, and let's decide the battle between those 24 men, or whatever. That's not the case here. What we've got here is really an introduction to the battle. Because, you see, Abner says, let the young soldiers... Well, the Jerusalem Bible rendering renders it this way. Let the young soldiers come forward and hold a contest before us. So, in effect, what Abner was asking for was a a kind of a curtain raiser to the main battle. That's how cold-blooded he was. And you know, at times, warfare may be waged by divine decree and then it becomes a godly war, doesn't it, to fulfil a divine purpose, invariably for the purpose of punishment or the exercising of justice against the wicked. I believe we looked at one passage in that regard against the Amalekites, Exodus 17 and verse 14 where Yahweh says I want you to know I have war against the Amalekites from generation to generation until they're wiped out. A just war for a just reason. In Joshua chapter 8 and verse 1 is another case from Old Testament times. Bringing us up to our own day and looking ahead we have a classic example of a divine war waged by divine decree as prophesied in Ezekiel 38. So there are these wars, but this was not such a war. But nevertheless, the angels were there. You know, some of the main weaknesses in human nature that produce warfare are things like ambition and greed, revenge, retaliation, all these things that are part of the outworking of flesh. And so this comes into play now at this particular time. David is not there. So Abner set off this slaughter purely upon the grounds of passion. You see, it was dominated by selfish interests. 
not by the principles of the truth. And when somebody is, is waging a campaign, such as Abner is here, somebody is organising a, a certain affront, a certain, a cert, the development of certain events to go in a certain way, to be manipulated in certain angles, because they've got an agenda that is not related to anything to do with the truth, how can they see the truth? How can they act responsibly on the part of the truth, on the part of God, on the part of brethren? It can't be done. So Abner had been moved by passion and self-confidence, believing that he could succeed when he triggered off this bloodshedding that took place that day. But once defeated, how abased he was. And in that respect, Abner and his army typifies those who will oppose the greater David when he begins to establish his kingdom. For example, holding a hand in 2 Samuel 2, we just have a look at words in Psalm 2, with which we're very, very familiar. They just fit this case absolutely. This is exactly what we've got here. In Psalm 2, prophetically, the nations who oppose the greater David of them it is said, why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed. This is really the mind of Abner here. This is what he was doing. Because Yahweh's anointed was there in Hebron, waiting to be recognised by all the tribes as God had promised. But Abner was not going to have any of that. So Abner's ruthlessness that comes to the fore here is very evident in the very cool and cold-blooded way in which he set off the fighting. It is Abner who instigated the battle. His personal ambition had made him blind not only to what he was doing but to the consequences of his actions. And isn't that sometimes the case? when we're impatient or if we're a little overconfident when we shouldn't be, when we forget to bring Yahweh into our considerations with whatever we've got in mind and we may intend to do, it's very easy to become not only blind to what we're doing but the consequences that may affect others. You see, Abner here cared nothing for the lives of the men who would fight and die the men who would destroy one another. He had no real love for his brethren in that sense. And so Joab responds. Joab says, let them arise, in verse 14. He took up the challenge. So Joab agreed that 12 of the strongest, most skillful young warriors should be chosen to come forward from each side and join in combat. And in verse 15, 12 men from each side come forward and advance upon their adversaries with grim determination. And look at verse 16. They caught everyone his fellow by the head and thrust his sword in his fellow's side. So they fell down together. Wherefore that place was called Helkaphazurim, which is in Gibeon. What a frightful display of fleshly lust and passion. There's something odd about this verse though. They caught everyone his fellow by the head. But where were their shields? 
Because normally when a soldier went out to battle, he would hold his sword or a spear of some kind in one hand and he would have the shield in the other for defence. There are no shields here because none of these men are interested in defence. Their mind is such, they didn't bother about defence, all they were doing was attacking. Well, very unwise, wasn't it? Because it cost all of them their lives. Surely there are lessons to be learnt there and things to think about in regard to that 15th and 16th verse. And so they would have grabbed each other either by the hair or the beard, thrust his sword into his fellow's side. The word thrust doesn't occur there at all. It's better rendered as we have it in Rotherham, who renders it, and they caught everyone his fellow by the head with his sword in his fellow's side as they fell together. The inference is that as they grabbed each other, to get a hold on each other, their swords went into each other at the same time, which shows the utter foolishness of soldiers even acting that way. Probably both sides, both groups, Joab's men and Abner's men, are filled with pride at how good they were and how able they were to take charge of the situation and cause the result to go in their way. They all died. What a dreadful thing. Wherefore that place was called and authorities certainly provide various uh, different meanings to the name of this place as it was named no doubt with awe and horror after this incident. But nevertheless it's interesting that the Jewish Targum says that the meaning of that place is the inheritance of those who were slain the inheritance of those who were slain. And you know what that's teaching us? That the inheritance of those who wore according to the flesh is a place among the dead. Because that's where they went. But verse 17 goes on to tell us that there was a very sore battle that day. Verse 17 says um, that uh, uh, there was a very sore battle that day and Abner was beaten and the men of Israel before the servants of David. So the initial slaughter of 24 men then led to an outright battle. We know that both Abner and Joab were completely ruthless. And though Joab was David's representatives here, here leading, uh, leading uh, Joab's, uh, leading uh, the, uh, David's army, nevertheless, there were two men very much alike. None wanted to, to, neither of them wanted to, to settle this matter in any other way than by the sword. And that's not always the best way, is it? Unless Yahweh decrees that it should be so. The result was that Abner's men was beat, were beaten. David's men were victorious. Joab lost 20 men, while Abner lost 360. And over, over and above all the evil that was performed that day, we need to remember that, that Yahweh's hand was in evidence there in that it was unthinkable that David's men could be defeated because Abner had to learn a lesson that he could not just take things into his own hands. As we saw from that proverb, you cannot fight against the counsel of Yahweh. And Abner had to be humiliated that day. He had to be humbled that day. 
And so in verse 18, we have reference there to also, um, he, uh, uh, there were three sons of Zeruiah, uh, Joab and Abishai and Asahil. And Asahil was as light as foot as a, as a wild robe. And Asahil pursued after Abner. And in going, he turned not to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. And Abner didn't want to kill him. Abner was a much more experienced man. But you know, as we look at this, verses 19 to 23 provide a very interesting cameo of yet another disastrous event. The incident involving Abner and Asahil has been recorded in some detail here. And for good reason. Because it had been Abner who had signalled the commencement of this dreadful slaughter. And the incident was to have far-reaching and disastrous consequences in his own life. Joab was to ruthlessly and mercilessly cut Abner down in a short while after this, in chapter 3 and verse 27. And of course, Joab himself was to die similarly and justly, as recorded in the first of Kings chapter 2 and verses 28 to 34. What's the principle there? All they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Matthew 26, verse 52. It's talking about fleshly combat. For fleshly aims, fleshly ambitions, fleshly self-satisfaction. You know, we might be inclined to say, well, that's all well and good. We follow that. But surely we must confess that David himself was a man of the sword. David was a man of war. And that, of course, is quite true. But David was an entirely different man to either Abner or Joab. Because when David went out to fight, he fought Yahweh's wars, not his own. His own wars, he left Yahweh to handle. He didn't try and fight to defend himself against Saul in all those years of persecution. He hid from Saul. He ran from Saul. He avoided Saul, but he did not fight Saul. He would not do that. He committed his cause into the hands of Yahweh, always. He fought Yahweh's wars, but he didn't fight his own. On the other hand, Joab and Abner wielded the sword, both of them, with ruthless self-ambitious ambition, being both ambitious. Whereas David, though a valiant warrior, was fundamentally a man of the Spirit. And this incident has been recorded in detail to emphasise the principle laid down by God very early in human history. In Genesis 9 and verse 6, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of Elohim made he man. And in that respect we need to remember that man was made in the image of Elohim not only physically, but he was to be a reflection of Yahweh spiritually. And that is one of the reasons why one of the great laws of Israel was thou shalt not kill. Because when you killed a man without a just and godly reason under the law, you were destroying a man's hope of ever becoming in the image of God spiritually and therefore you were taking away from him his hope of an inheritance in the kingdom if he wasn't already spiritually developed. And so tonight we leave this here with the words of David again from Psalm 55 this time 
And at verse 23, where David summarises this aspect of life in these words, But thou, O Elohim, shalt bring them down into the pit of destruction. Men of blood and deceit shall not live out half their days. But I will trust in thee. And that was the disposition of David. And it's the disposition that each of us must endeavour to develop in our own lives while we wait for the coming of the Lord.